ideas might resonate closely with one and the other, for others of you perhaps not. Before we look at the Buddha's own um, response to the question of God, we clearly have to see it in terms of his own time and culture. So I'd like to start just by um, looking again at some passages in the Upanishads to see how God is understood. This is from the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. He cannot be seen, for when breathing, he is breath by name, when speaking, speech by name, when thinking, mind by name. All these are but the various names of him and his doing. And he who regards him as the one or the other of these various things does not know him, for he is apart from everything that is qualified as this or that. Remember, the Buddha is teaching pachayata, this, that, conditionality. God, well, he, remember, in the Upanishads, refers not just to <clears throat> the transcendent God, but also to the transcendent self, deep within the heart of us all. This is from the Kata Upanishad. His form is not to be seen. No one beholds him with the eye. He gets revealed by controlling the heart, the intellect, the mind. In other passages, um, God or self is seen as that who controls, who runs the mind. Those who know this are immortal. also from the Kata Upanishad. He cannot be reached by speech, by mind, or by the eye. How can it be apprehended except by him who says, he is? Again, another famous passage in the Upanishads and in the Vedanta teaching is this idea of tatvam asi, thou art that. It's a simple a declarative imperative. That's the only way one can, as it were, articulate this knowing. When Buddhists became, when Buddhists started reverting to uh, more theistic ideas, you find similar uh, notions. You have, for example, in uh, passages in the Chittamatra philosophy where it says, the I cannot... The, 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 just as the eye cannot see itself, the sword cannot cut itself, the finger cannot touch itself, the mind cannot know itself. There's something there, again, about the primacy of a, transcend, a transcendental knower or knowing, which in the Vedanta is equivalent to Brahman and Atman. So what does the Buddha have to say about this? Uh, this is from the, the Tevija Sutta, the 
Diga Nikaya 13. And it tells of a young Brahmin called Vaseta, who comes to the Buddha and says, this is the only straight path. This is the direct path. The path to salvation that leads one who follows it to union with Brahma, as is taught by Brahmin Pokarasati. And then the Buddha asks him, but Vaseta, is there then a single one of these Brahmins learned in the Vedas who has seen Brahma face to face? And Vaseta replies, no, Reverend Gautama. Well, Vaseta, the Buddha goes on, when these Brahmins learned in the three Vedas teach a path that they do not know or see, saying this is the only straight path, this cannot possibly be right. Just as a file of blind men go on clinging each to the other, and the first one sees nothing, the middle one sees nothing, and the last one sees nothing, so it is with the talk of these Brahmins, learned in the three Vedas. The talk of these Brahmins turns out to be laughable, mere words, empty and vain. Vaseta, it's just as if a man were to say, I am going to seek out and love the most beautiful girl in the country. They might say to him, do you know what caste she belongs to? No. Do you know her name, her clan, whether she is short or tall, dark or light complexioned, or where she comes from? No. And then they might say, well then, you don't know or see the one you seek for and desire? And he would say, no. Does, the, does not the talk of that man, man turn out to be foolish? Vaseta, it's just as if a man were to build a staircase for a palace at a crossroads. People might say, this staircase, do you know whether the palace will face east or west, north or south, or whether it will be high, low, or of medium height? And he would say, no. And they might say, well then, you don't know or see what kind of palace you are building a staircase for. And he would say, no. Does the talk of that man turn out not to be rather foolish? So belief in God for the Buddha is like uh, building a staircase for a non-existent palace. It's like declaring oneself to be in love with the be most beautiful girl in the world, and yet you actually know nothing about her. There's another passage. This is in the, uh, the Kula Sakuladai Sutta, Majjhima 79. And this concerns our friend Udayan, who we mentioned before. Well, Udayan, says the Buddha, what is taught in your teacher's doctrine? It is taught in our teacher's doctrine. This is the perfect splendor. This is the perfect splendor. The upamovano, the highest light, or something like that. But Udayan, what is that perfect splendor? Venerable sir, that splendor is the perfect splendor which is unsurpassed by any other splendor higher or more sublime. But, O oh, Dain, what is that perfect splendor which is unsurpassed by any other splendor higher or more sublime? Venerable Sir, that splendor is the perfect splendor. 
which is unsurpassed by any other splendor, higher or more sublime. We have here a sense of the Buddha um, slightly making fun of these views, pointing out to the, the circularity of these kinds of arguments. Now, there's another passage in the Kevada Sutta, which is the 11th uh, discourse in the, the Diga Nikaya. And this is a, a sutta that concerns a monk who wants to know where the great elements cease without remainder. And in order to get an answer to this question, he's, uh, he's portrayed as going to ask all of the gods, the devas. And he starts with the lowest god, I don't know which one that is, but a, a lowly deva. And the lowly deva says, that, well, actually he doesn't know, but he should go and ask the next deva up, the next god on the rank of ascending devahood. And so finally, he ends up in the realm of Brahma, usually considered to be the highest god. And this is what he's told by Brahma's retinue. He first sort of meets the attendants of Brahma. And they say, well, actually, we don't know where the elements cease without remainder. But there is a Brahma, the great Brahma, the overlord, the untranscended, of infallible vision, wielder of mastery, lord maker and creator, most high providence, master and father of those that are and ever will be. He is loftier and wiser than we are, he would know where the four great elements cease without remainder. And it was not long before the great Brahma appeared, and that monk went up to him and said, Friend, where do the great elements cease without remainder? To which the great Brahma replied, Monk, I am Brahma, great Brahma, the overlord, the untranscended, of infallible vision, wielder of mastery, lord maker and creator. And the monk said, um, I didn't ask you if you were Brahma, great Brahma, and so on. I asked you where the great element cease without remainder. And the Brahma then repeats the same phrase twice more, which I'm not going to do. And the text ends, it says, Then the great Brahma took that monk by the arm, led him aside and said, Monk, um, these gods believe there is nothing Brahma does not see, there is nothing he does not know. There is nothing he is unaware of. That is why I didn't speak in front of them. But actually, I don't know where the four great elements <laughs> is. <laughs> now, um, what I think becomes quite clear from here is the Buddha is an atheist. Um, he gives no... Uh, credibility to the claims of these gods, um, particularly their rather grandiose claims, uh, nor to that of their followers. But I think we have to make a rather important distinction here. The Buddha is an ironic atheist. He's not a fanatic atheist. In other words, his atheism is not a hard and fast position. He doesn't unlike many atheists, and I can think of a few contemporary examples, he doesn't give uh, to the idea of God the sort of seriousness that its believers claim it has. He has a sense of humor. 
he laughs at it slightly, he ridicules it, he makes fun of it, but he doesn't take an anti-God position. He's not in that sense an atheist who defines what he's doing, as many atheists do, as a kind of opposition to God. And the split we have often in our culture is between theists and atheists, each of whom is equally fanatical about the fact of being right. The Buddha does not take that stand. He's an ironic atheist. A fanatic, and this is something I was reading just the other day in an essay by Amos Oz, the Israeli writer, who points out that a fanatic is somebody who cannot tolerate that others think differently and believe different things from him. It's an intolerant, uh, somewhat self-righteous, indignant stance. And we can see it today in some of the tracts on atheism as much as we can in the counterclaims of theism. In fact, uh, someone's coined this term evangelical atheism <laughs> to refer to the writings of, of people like Richard Dawkins and others. And what they have in common is that they are entirely devoid of any sense of humor. <laughs> they are humorless people. <laughs> we cannot imagine Osama bin Laden and his friend um, Eichmann al-Zawahari sitting in their cave in the mountains of Pakistan with the Kalashnikovs against the wall. And one of them saying, did you hear the one about the prophet and the camel? <laughs> Yet the Buddha's approach seems to be much uh, closer to this ironic, rather humorous, not taking these sorts of radical claims so seriously, not taking a fixed position. And it's a bit like what we saw yesterday with the, when, we do, when they described the Brahmins and the wanderers of the different sects sitting around outside Shravasti, wrangling and disputing with each other, injuring each other with verbal darts. That is the description of fanatics, people who cannot tolerate that other people think otherwise. And the Buddha refuses to get drawn into that kind of polarization. So, we have clear passages in, in the Pali Canon of a Buddhist um, understanding and orientation towards the kind of claims theists make. And nonetheless, the idea of God, particularly in our culture, is one that we seem in some ways very reluctant to let go of. Of course, everybody nowadays would dismiss as childish the idea that God is some old man sitting up in the sky with a long white beard who created the world one day. Nowadays, God tends to be understood in terms of, say, divine intelligence. 
intelligent design would be one way in which we see that. Or else, again, very much influenced by Vedanta, God is seen um, as some kind of some kind of consciousness, some uh, primary knowing that transcends the conditional world and yet somehow illuminates it. But in both cases, whether it's God as the old man in the sky or God as some kind of consciousness, we're doing effectively the same thing. We're taking an element from the conditioned world a father figure or consciousness, and we're privileging it, we're raising it to some um, non-conditioned status. We're not perhaps aware, though, of how we are, in a sense, playing the same game. So consciousness is, for many, I think now, the god of choice. But as we saw in that text and throughout the Pali Canon, uh, for the Buddha, consciousness is a contingent event. It comes about depending on conditions. As he said, it's uh, just as a fire is named according to what fuel is being burnt, so consciousness arises according to what objects and senses are being activated. Now, the word Buddha nature... Um, I feel has gained the sort of appeal and popularity it has precisely because it, allow, it, it, it sounds like a very attractive surrogate for Atman and Brahman. And as Buddhists, we may be able to say, well, of course, I don't believe in God. I don't have a self, but I have the Buddha nature. <laughs> So we tend, again, and this is, um, again, I think characteristic of our time, rather than thinking of the transcendent or the ultimate as something outside us or beyond us, we tend to seek for it deep, deep inside of ourselves. And that, of course, is where we will find the Buddha nature. The first thing we have to point out here is that there is no word in either Pali or Sanskrit, that corresponds to the English word Buddha nature. doesn't exist. Buddha Swabhava, or something like that. So why is it then that the word is so current in our contemporary Buddhist lexicon? Again, it's a strange story of historical accident. When... Diti Suzuki, uh, particularly, started to translate into English um, Mahayana works primarily from Chinese and uh, Japanese. He translated the word Fu Xing in Chinese, or in Japanese it's Bu Shu, which does literally mean Buddha nature. Fu, Buddha, Xing, nature. And um, that's how the whole process began. But what is curious is that the Chinese, when they translated um, the Sanskrit words, they did not translate them literally. We'll come back to this in, uh, in, in a moment. 
but they coined this term Buddha nature. Now, it's, it's worth pointing out that in the Pali Canon, as far as I'm aware, there is not this word swabhava or nature simply doesn't appear. And when it appears in, say, Nagarjuna, particularly, um, swabhava is precisely the name for the problem that we face. Swabhava, or essence, or nature, is equivalent to the sense of a um, of a kind of permanent self. Nagarjuna's school of philosophy, which I think in many ways is a return to the early Buddhist tradition with its emphasis, its primary emphasis on contingency and conditionality. The critique of Nagarjuna is the critique of this idea of swabhava, of nature or essence. In other words, that there is within us some essential nature, some true nature or self that is not contingent or conditional in any way. The philosophy of, of emptiness is one of uh, dissolving and exploding this fiction of essence or nature. In other words, in philosophical parlance, Nagarjuna is an is a non or an anti-essentialist. And I feel that is likewise true, although such terminology is not found, of the Buddha's approach in the early canon. So, let's try to uh, find out, therefore, where this idea of Buddha nature, or uh, what we translate as Buddha nature, actually originated? Where did it come from? It's often said that the concept of Buddha nature is an entirely Mahayana Buddhist um, doctrine that is not found at all in the early canon. I don't think this is true. In fact, when I was studying this um, many, many years ago, um, when I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk, we studied the doctrine of, of Sangigi Rik, which we translate as Buddha nature. And um, in the textbooks of the monastic college in Lhasa, Sereje, which, uh, to which I belonged, um, they trace the origin of the idea of Buddha nature back to the early, what they call, Agamas. And I've recently... In fact, Martin actually came across this passage. I've only recently found that passage in the Anguttara Nikaya. And the Anguttara Nikaya is the numerical discourses of the Buddha. And here, uh, the term the Buddha uses is Arya Gota. Arya Gota. We've seen this word Arya in the Arya Satcha, the noble truths. Aryagota means the noble lineage. Gota, uh, or gotra in Sanskrit, gota is a term that existed before the Buddha. It's a term um, we find already present. It had to do with, um, with, with the lineage in the wider sense, not necessarily the, the blood lineage, but a sort of spiritual lineage to which one belonged and which gave one a sense of identity. When the Buddha first goes to Rajgir, 
after he's left home. He's asked by King Bimbisara, who are you, where do you come from? And he says, I am of the Aditya Gota. I am of the lineage of the sun. It seems as though the Buddha's clan were um, traditionally um, worshipped the sun. They were a solar cult. In fact, in the Puranas, which is a later Hindu uh, document, um, the whole of Kosala, the region where the Buddha lived, um, is described as belonging to the lineage of the sun. Um, that, and, and even in, in, uh, in later Buddhist writings, um, the Buddha is sometimes called the Nime Nyen in Tibetan, which means uh, the compatriot of the sun. Uh, this solar imagery is actually retained. But when the Buddha starts to teach, he doesn't speak of the Aditya Gota, he speaks of the Arya Gota, the lineage of the noble ones, the Arya. And just in the same way with the four noble or Aryan truths, he turns the notion of Arya from an <coughs> ethnic concept, the Aryan race, into a spiritual concept. Arya means those who have achieved a spiritual uh, dignity or nobility that has nothing whatsoever to do with caste or gender or any other such identities. And this same word Arya is then taken up as describing the sort of lineage that he um, has perhaps originated in his teaching, in his community, those who become Arya, dignified, ennobled, um, start by finding themselves in this kind of family, we might say. Now, some of you are probably wondering, well, what's this got to do with Buddha nature? I'll get to that. So the Buddha describes the person who is of the lineage of the noble ones in four ways. There are four characteristics. The first is contentment with food. The second is contentment with clothing. The third is contentment with housing. And the fourth is um, delight in bhavana or cultivation. Uh, remember, he uses the word bhavana as the activity that we require in relation to the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is to be bhavanad, brought into being. A person who delights in that kind of creation, <coughs> cultivation, nurturing of a path which encompasses the whole of one, is also, is thereby of the Aryagota, of the noble lineage. What's particularly striking, and I remember being very surprised by this when I learnt it as a young monk, is that the first three characteristics of belonging to the Aryagota have to do with the achievement of material needs. In other words, the Buddha seems to be saying, one cannot embark on this path until one's primary needs are met. Housing, clothing, 
um, food. So he seems to be saying that if a society is to uh, become one that embodies and values and seeks to pursue this Eightfold Path, it is responsible in the first instance for achieving um, material um, security, material provision. Not a society in which some people starve or others are homeless, but without those basic material uh, uh, comforts or contentments, is the word he uses, it's not possible, in fact, to begin to cultivate the path. So there seems to be in this idea um, the beginnings of a social theory that Buddhism is not just about some spiritual practice, but actually it starts with a recognition of the need for material security and provision and comfort. The idea of, of Arya Gota, or let's say the idea of Gota, lineage, is subsequently developed um, more in the Mahayana than in the early schools um, as a kind of typology. A Gota or Gotra um, is seen as um, a way of recognizing that people have, uh, are born with different predispositions towards what we might call spiritual practice or Buddhist practice. Um, Asanga, who's a key figure in, this, uh, in the development of these ideas, um, distinguishes between the, the Savaka Gotha, the Shravaka Gotha, the Pacheka Buddha Gotra, and the Bodhisattva Gotra. Um, let me just explain what those are. The, the Shravaka Gotra means the lineage of the disciples. Shravaka means the hearers or the listeners, people whose spiritual life is very much that of a disciple or a student or a follower. Uh, those around the Buddha are often called the, the, the Savaka, the Savaka Sangha, the community of disciples, of followers, of listeners, of learners. That's one, as it were, a spiritual type. It's somehow descriptive of a certain kind of, of, of identity, a certain sense of who you are in relation to your practice. You then have the Pacheka Buddha Gotha, the lineage of the, um, the Pacheka Buddha, the solitary Buddhas. Um, the solitary Buddhas are regarded as all those beings who independently of Buddhism or a Buddha's teacher awaken to the principle of conditioned arising, dependent origination. That's the insight they gain. But they gain it not through learning from a teacher or being part of a Buddhist community or reading the Pali Canon, but they gain it through their own investigation into the nature of things. They do not necessarily teach. They may be quite solitary in their insight and understanding. 
and yet they can reach the experience of Nibbana by themselves. This is again an idea that's not much discussed in Buddhism, but the idea continues right through the traditions. Um, The Buddha speaks, in fact, of before he um, became the Buddha, there were Pacheka Buddhas in India of, of his time. And he gives great honor and respect to Pacheka Buddhas. There were, as it were, solitary awakened ones um, who are present before and after and during the dispensation of a Buddha. This is a very, I feel, um, a liberating idea. And it points to a certain universality of what the Buddha's teaching. It's not some exclusive monopoly of Buddhists. And one might, I mean, I would make an argument, although it might be a bit over the top. Um, my favorite candidate for a Pacheco Buddha is uh, the English poet John Keats. <laughs> but I don't want to go there right now. <laughs> But you will find in uh, Keats's letters and poetry ideas that are startlingly Buddhist-like. He talks of no self, for example. He talks of the artist as one who has no self. And many, many other passages. I've got lots of text on this at home, but I'm not going to explore it. But the point is that um, uh, the Buddha's uh, insights are not exclusive to Buddhists. And the third kind of, of type in Asanga's uh, classification is the bodhisattva, somebody who, whose spiritual life um, is primarily uh, driven by an altruistic concern and love for the suffering of others. Not a love of the suffering of others, but a, um, a wish to respond to the pain of the world. Um, And I think these three types we can see not only in Buddhism, but in all traditions in a way. Um, People seem to be wired in different ways. And their their religious and their spiritual life um, is somehow uh, originates with the temperament and disposition that is kind of inborn. Now, Asanga then further develops the idea of Gotra into the notion of Buddha Gotra, the Buddha lineage. And this is probably the term that is most widely used in um, all of these texts that have to do with what we translate as Buddha nature. The most commonly used word in Sanskrit and in Tibetan for Buddha nature is Buddha-gotra, or Sangigirik in Tibetan, which means Buddha lineage. And this is why we can trace back the origins of the Buddha nature back to the Aryagota that we find in the Pali Canon. Now, remember that all of the, the very idea of lineage implies continuity over time. It's a dynamic idea rather than a static idea. Buddha nature suggests some kind of essential something, 
tucked away inside us beyond the conditioned world. Buddha lineage suggests a progression, a growth. It's an image drawn from the life of the family, from birth, from death, from being born into something, through evolving, through changing. In other words, the idea of Gotra is a dynamic idea that has to do with fulfilling a certain uh, potential that one's temperament and one's disposition grants one. But perhaps the most um, uh, rich metaphor for uh, Buddha Gotra is this term Tathagata Garbha. Tathagata Garbha, which again is usually translated as Buddha nature. Tathagata Garbha. Tathagata means an awakened one, a true person. And Garbha means womb. The womb of the Tathagata. Now this is a, an, a, a metaphor of a completely different order to that of an essential nature. A womb, and it's quite surprising in a way that um, Buddhist monks in monasteries um, used and came up with this metaphor. The, the Buddha never uses it in the Pali. Garbha is womb. Now what is a womb? A womb is an empty space. But it's not just any empty space, like the empty space in this room, but it's an empty space that can be fertilized, an empty space in which an embryo can germinate. It's a, a space in which something can grow and from which something can be born. And so again, we see this is very much within the same metaphoric um, context as lineage. Lineages come from wombs. There's something um, very fleshly and biological about this image, and it's also, of course, a deeply feminine image. And it's really quite at odds with the idea of Buddha nature, some kind of intrinsic um, essence of our being. Again, it's a dynamic, processual idea of nurturing and birth, that one gives birth, as, as it were, to an awakened mind, an awakened being. It's, if we take the meta meta metaphor, it's a metaphor for the human organism, that the human organism, this mind-body complex, is like a womb, that when it is impregnated with certain ideas, when those ideas are realized through different practices, then that organism is able to give birth to an awakened awareness, a Buddha, a Bodhisattva. It's very much, again, to do with creation, as we find in Bhavana bringing something into being. So how come then the idea of 
Buddha nature, which the more that we explore this, the less appropriate this word will begin to sound. And maybe at the end of the talk we can get rid of it altogether. How come it's come to mean for us some kind of divine or spiritual essence within us? Well, this also comes from Asanga. And probably the, the key text that originates the idea of Buddha nature is a text called the Ratnagota Vibhanga, which means a commentary on the precious lineage. It's sometimes called the Uttara Tantra Shastra, the commentary on the highest continuum, Tantra. Tantra doesn't mean here Tantric Buddhism. It means Tantra means literally continuum or continuity. And the highest continuum is the mind essence. So we find in this text um, a series of similes, and I'll just give you three of them, that the Buddha, the Buddha Gotra, I'm going to say Buddha nature because that's the word we use. The Buddha nature is like the gold uh, or the seams of gold that run through ordinary rock. The Buddha nature is like the uh, honey inside the honeycomb. The Buddha nature is like a golden Buddha image wrapped up in soiled cloth. Um, in, I remember in the Upanishads we find similar kinds of imagery. They say that the self is like the oil um, in the seed of sesamum, something that could be squeezed out. So these images, I think, on the one hand, can be very inspirational. If we're feeling um, depressed or worthless or lost, we can have the confidence that somewhere within that confusion and that depression, there lies a seam of something else. And in that respect, I don't have a problem with these images. They become problematic because they are essentially dualistic. The gold is different from the rock. It's something else. It can be taken out of the rock and the rock and the gold can be two separate things. Ditto, the honey and the honeycomb, the oil and the husk of the seed, the Buddha image and the soiled cloth in which it is wrapped. We have, uh, Asanga's introduced metaphors of duality, unmistakably here, and consequently the Buddha nature is seen as that which is not intrinsic to the structure of the conditional world, but somehow lies beyond it. And when a Sangha then um, uh, develops these similes into um, ideas, then we find um, passages like this. This is verse 62 of the Uttara Tantra Shastra. The innate mind, he says, is like space, being of no cause or condition or complex of producing factors. It has neither origination nor destruction. The innate nature of mind is brilliant and like space has no transformation at all. 
It bears, however, the impurity of desires and so on, which are accidental and the product of wrong conception. Now, these ideas are quite familiar um, in a lot of teachings about the nature of mind. And as we can see, uh, this innate mind is without cause or condition or complex of producing factors. It has neither origination nor destruction. In other words, it stands outside the flux of contingent events. It comes to resemble very much the Atman Brahman of the Upanishads. And perhaps the, the most striking verse, this is verse 52, it says, just as space, being all-pervading, cannot be polluted because of its subtle nature, similarly, abiding everywhere among living beings, this mind essence remains unpolluted. Then, look at Bhagavad Gita, chapter 13, verse 32, which says, just as space, being all-pervading, cannot be affected because of its subtle nature, similarly, abiding everywhere among living things, this self remains unpolluted. Asanga has borrowed a verse from the Bhagavad Gita, word for word, except instead of mind essence, we have Atman. And that kind of gives the game away. Uh, we have in, in these kinds of ideas what seems, I would argue, rather indisputably, a uh, return back to the uh, Vedanta uh, tradition. But remember that Mahayana Buddhism, or the main th there are two main threads within the Mahayana Buddhist uh, development. One which stems from Nagarjuna, which focuses um, entirely on the primacy of conditionality and contingency. And another, which stems from Asanga, who lived a couple of hundred years after Nagarjuna, in which we find a slippage back into the matrix of classical Indian Vedantic thought. And we find this distinction being played out today. I was trained in the Geluk school of Tibetan Buddhism that um, is, sees itself entirely as rooted in the tradition that comes from Nagarjuna. And in all of my training, um, all of the philosophical studies we did, there was a consistent emphasis on the equivalence of emptiness or absence of essence with conditionality or conditioned arising. And a consistent rejection of any suggestion of some kind of mind essence. If you read Shantideva or Chandrakirti, who are the great philosophers in this school, you find that this is their main thrust. In, the, in some of the other Tibetan schools, in the Kagyu Nyingma schools particularly, 
and also in, in different styles of Zen. Zen also divides itself along similar lines. But the traditions that nowadays present themselves as the practice traditions, which is a subtle put-down of the Gelukpa, who are supposedly a bunch of neurotic intellectuals, like me, <laughs> um, then there's a, a, an enormous emphasis on these teachings of mind, nature of mind, Rikpa, and so on, which, um, if we start to look back at the Vedanta, at the Upanishads, we see is very much in the same vein. In Tsongkhapa, who's the founder of the Geluk school, and probably the last great proponent within the Nagarjuna line, for him, when he speaks of Buddha nature, or they, they never use this word Buddha nature, Sangegirik, Buddha Gotra, he understands it as the absence of intrinsic existence of the person. In other words, a human being has the capacity to become awake, not because of some innate property or essence within them, but because they are devoid of self-existence. In other words, although it appears that we are somehow a solid, fixated me, as we look more closely into the nature of our body-mind experience, we find no such thing no such fixed self. For Tsongkhapa, um, the uh, emptiness means the unfindability of any essential nature. There is just contingent process, physical, emotional, mental, ongoing. And because we are processual beings rather than essential beings, we are able to change, we are able to evolve, we are able to become Buddhas. And this is how he understands the Buddha lineage, or the womb of the Tathagata. Although, again, the Tibetans also didn't translate womb of the Tathagata as womb, but as the Nyingbo, which means like the heart of the Tathagata, a different organ. The Chinese, likewise, didn't use womb, but nature. Perhaps Tibetan and Chinese monks were slightly squeamish. <laughs> but it's odd that that term didn't convert. And perhaps the, um, uh, the presentation of Buddha nature that um, I find most helpful is that of Dogen. Dogen was the 13th century founder of the Soto school of Zen in Japan. And he wrote this famous text called the Shobogenzo, which consists of about 100 short essays, one of which is called Busho, Buddha Nature. And at the opening of this text, Dogen asks rhetorically, what is Busho? What is Buddha Nature? And he answers, Buddha Nature is... What is this thing, and how did it get here? Which is what Martine was saying this morning. For do, what is this thing, and how did it get here, is the answer, well, not the answer, the provocation that Huineng, the sixth Zen patriarch, made to Huai Zhang, the young monk who came to study with him. 
I don't know whether Martin told the story, but Huai Zhang was an eight, early 8th century Chinese monk. He comes down south to Guangzhou, near Guangzhou in southern China, is introduced to Huainang, the sixth patriarch. Huainang says, oh, where have you come from? And Huai Zhang says, I've come from Mount Song. And then Huainang says, but what is this thing? How did it get here? Huai Zhang was speechless, the text says, and he then spent eight years in the monastery. <laughs> now, in other words, this what is this thing and how did it get here is a way of waking up to the profound questionableness of our existence. Our existence is not a more or less interesting set of facts, but it is something profoundly strange and mysterious. We don't know what this thing is and how it got here. And that ability to question, that ability to be perplexed, not just in one's mind, but in one's whole being, is for Dogen, the Buddha nature. In other words, when our life becomes a question for us, when our experience of ourselves opens up as something deeply strange and mysterious, then we embark on a path of inquiry. Not a path of inquiry in which we adopt a set of dogmatic views and beliefs, but a path of inquiry in which we stay true to and deepen that sense of perplexity, what in Zen is sometimes called the great doubt. So again, for Dogen, even though he uses the word Buddha nature, he undermines it by not pointing to some mind essence or something like that, but pointing to how, uh, but pointing to a question, not an affirmation. In the commentary to the Gateless Gate, which is a famous Zen text, the the commentator says you should question with the marrow of your bones and with the pores of your skin. In other words, this kind of questioning um, is a primary, immediate sense of astonishment and surprise and bewilderment at the fact that we're here at all. It's what in Western philosophy might be conveyed in the question why is there anything at all rather than nothing? It's the shock of our being. Whereas the ego, or the alaya, as I spoke of it, the, um, this delighting and reveling in one's place, is effectively a closing down our life as a question and reducing it to a set of answers. I am this, I am that, I am a writer, I am a... English person, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a this, I'm a that. That gives us a kind of uh, fake security. But when, as the Buddha says, um, uh, one opens up to this ground of conditioned arising, then all of those certainties and convictions have no place. One is in the flow of the unfolding and the outpouring of life moment to moment, in all of its strangeness, in all of its mystery. 
And that, for Dogen, is where this Buddha nature um, is found. And I think there's a very beautiful uh, symmetry here from the Buddha's own account of his awakening in the text we looked at earlier in this week, now back to Dogen, which is a long way away in a different period, a different time. And yet there seems to be a deep resonance here between this Zen questioning, what is this, and the opening to contingency and change and process that seems so... um, Uh, such a core element of the unfolding, the cultivating, and the nurturing of a path. And no um, need for any kind of essential, uh, transcendent uh, knowing, or awareness, or self, or Buddha nature, or mind essence. All of that can be swept away. So we'll stop here, and uh, tomorrow I'm going to uh, look uh, in conclusion at the theme of self um, and uh, society, and how that ties into what we've been exploring this week. Thank you.